Hello, we're continuing in the Book of Virtues under the Self-Discipline Chapter, Part 2 of 4. The first poem is titled John, Tom, and James. We meet three ill-behaved children whom nobody likes. John was a bad boy and beat a poor cat. Tom put a stone in the blind man's hat. James was the boy who neglected his prayers. They've all grown up ugly and nobody cares. No authors listed. The next one is, there was a little girl. We meet the child who, like most, is sometimes well-behaved and sometimes not. We face a hard and avoidable fact of life. If we cannot control our own behavior, eventually someone will come and control it for us, in a way we probably will not like. This poem is sometimes attributed to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. There was a little girl, and she had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. When she was bad, she was horrid. One day she went upstairs when her parents, unawares, in the kitchen were occupied with meals. And she stood upon her head in her little trundle bed and then began hurraying with her heels. Her mother heard the noise and she thought it was the boys playing at combat in the attic. When she climbed the stair and found Jemima there, she took and did spank her most emphatic. That was called There Was a Little Girl. Book of Virtues still under self-discipline and this is called My Own Self retold by Joseph Jacobs. The commentary um, by Mr. Bennett says sometimes fortune offers us close calls we should take as warnings. Even a sigh of relief is not enough. If we're smart we'll change our behavior. Self-discipline is learned in the face of adversity as this old English fairy tale reminds us. In a tiny house in the north country, far away from any town or village, there lived not long ago a poor widow all alone with her little son, a six-year-old boy. The house door opened straight onto the hillside, and all around about were moorlands and huge stones and swampy hollows, never a house nor a sign of life wherever you might look, for their nearest neighbors were the fairies in the glen below and the will-o'-the-wisps in the long grass along the pathside. In many a tale the widow could tell of the, quote, good folk calling to each other in the oak trees and the twinkling lights hopping on to the very windowsill on dark nights. But in spite of the loneliness, she lived on from year to year in the little house, perhaps because she was never asked to pay any rent for it. But she did not care to sit up late. When the fire burned low and no one knew what might be about, so when they had had their supper, she would make up a good fire and go off to bed. So if anything terrible did happen, she could always hide her head under the bedclothes. This, however, was far too early to please her little son. So when she called him to bed, he would go on playing beside the fire as if he did not hear her. He had always been bad to do with since the day he was born, and his mother did not often care to cross him. Indeed, the more she tried to make him obey her, the less heed he paid to anything she said. So it usually ended up by his taking his own way. But one night, just at the forend of winter, the widow could not make up her mind to go off to bed and leave him playing by the fireside, for the wind was tugging at the door and rattling the window panes, and well she knew that on such a night fairies and such were liked liked to bound to be about, like bound to be about and bent on mischief, so she tried to coax the boy into going at once to bed. It's safest to bide in bed on such a night as this, she said, but no, he wouldn't go. Then she threatened to give him the stick, but it was no use. The more she begged and scolded, the more he shook his head. 
and when at last she lost patience and cried that the fairies would surely come and fetch him away, he only laughed and said he wished they would, for he would like to play one to play with. At this, his mother burst into tears and went off to bed in despair, certain that after such words something dreadful would happen, while her naughty little son sat on his stool by the fire, not at all put out by her crying. But she had not been long sitting there alone, but he had not been long sitting there alone, when he heard a little fluttering sound near him in the chimney, and presently down by his side dropped the tiniest wee girl you could think of. She was not a span high and had hair like spun silver, eyes as green as grass, and cheeks as red as June roses. The little boy looked at her with surprise. Oh, said he, what do they call ye? My own self, she said in a shrill but sweet little voice, and she looked at him too. And what do they call ye? Just my own self too, he answered cautiously, and with that they began to play together. She certainly showed him some fine games. She made animals out of, out of the ashes that looked and moved like life, and trees with green leaves waving over tiny houses with men and women an inch high in them, who, when she breathed on them, fell to walking and talking quite properly. But the fire was getting low and the light dim, and presently the little boy stirred the coals with a stick to make them blaze, but when out jumped a red-hot cinder, where should it fall but on the fairy child's tiny foot? Thereupon she set up such a squeal that the boy dropped the stick and clapped his hands to his ears, but it grew to so shrill a shriek that it was like all the wind in the world whistling through one tiny keyhole. There was a sound in the chimney again, but this time the little boy did not wait to see what it was, but bolted off to bed, where he hid under the blankets and listened in fear and trembling to what went on. A voice came from the chimney speaking sharply. "'Who's there and what's wrong?' it said." "'It's my own self,' sobbed the fairy child, "'and my foot's burned sore. Oh!' "'Who did it?' said the voice angrily. "'This time it sounded nearer, "'and the boy, peeping from under the clothes, "'could see a white face looking out from the chimney opening. "'Just my own self, too,' said the fairy child again. "'Then if you did it your own self,' cried the elf mother shrilly, "'what's the use of making all this fuss about?' "'And with that she stretched out a long, thin arm "'and caught the creature by its ear, and "'shaking it roughly, pulled it after her, "'and out of sight up the chimney.' The little boy lay awake a long time, listening in case the fairy mother should come back after all. And next evening after supper, his mother was surprised to find that he was willing to go to bed whenever she liked. He's taken a turn for the better at last, she said to herself. But he was thinking just then that when the next a fairy came to play with him, he might not get off quite so easily as he has done, had done this time. <clears throat> that little story was called My Own Self, retold by Joseph Jacobs. This poem is called To the Little Girl Who Wriggles by Laura E. Richards, in which we learn to sit still. Don't wriggle about any more, my dear. I'm sure all your joints must be sore, my dear. It's wriggle and jiggle, it's twist and it's wiggle, like an eel on a shingly shore, my dear, like an eel on a shingly shore. Oh, how do you think you would feel, my dear, if you should turn into an eel, my dear, with never an arm to protect you from harm, and no sign of a toe or a heel, my dear, no sign of a toe or a heel. And what do you think you would do, my dear, far far down in the water so blue, my dear, where the prawns and the shrimps with their curls and their crimps would turn up their noses at you, my dear, would you turn up, would turn up their noses at you? The crab, he would give you a nip, my dear, and the lobster would lend you a clip, my dear, and perhaps if a shark should come by in the dark, down his throat you might happen to slip, my dear, down his throat you might happen to slip. Then try to sit still in your chair, my dear, 
To your parents, tis no more than fair, my dear, for we really don't feel like inviting an eel. Our board and our lodging to share, my dear, our board and our lodging to share. That was to the little girl who wriggles by Laura E. Richards. This story is called Jim, who ran away from his nurse and was eaten by a lion. And it's by Hilaire Belloc, in which we discover the kind of gruesome end that comes to children who dart away from their mothers into streets, run away from their fathers at crowded ballparks, dash screaming down grocery store aisles, and who in general cannot bring themselves to hold onto the hand they're told to hold. There was a boy whose name was Jim. His friends were very good to him. They gave him tea and cakes and jam and slices of delicious ham and chocolate with pink inside, and little tricycles to ride, and read him stories through and through, and even took him to the zoo. But there it was the dreadful fate befell him, which I now relate. You know, at least you ought to know, for I have often told you so, that children never are allowed to leave their nurses in a crowd. Now this was Jim's especial foible. When he ran away, he ran away when he was able, and then on this inauspicious day, he slipped his hand and ran away. He hadn't gone a yard when, bang, with open jaws, a lion sprang and hungrily began to eat, the boy beginning at his feet. Now just imagine how it feels when first your toes and then your heels, and then by gradual degrees, your shins and ankles, calves and knees are slowly eaten bit by bit. No wonder Jim detested it. No wonder that he shouted, hi! The honest keeper heard his cry, though very fat, he almost ran to help the little gentleman. Ponto, he ordered as he came, for Ponto was the lion's name. Ponto, he cried with angry frown. Let go, sir. Down, sir. Put it down. The lion made a sudden stop. He let the dainty morsel drop and slunk reluctant to his cage, snarling with disappointed rage. But when he bent him over Jim, the honest keeper's eyes were dim. The lion having reached his head, the miserable boy was dead. When nurse informed his parents they were more concerned than I can say, his mother said, as she dried her eyes, said, Well, it gives me no surprise. He would not do as he was told. His father, who was self-controlled, bade all children round attend to James's miserable end, and always keep a hold of nurse for fearing of finding something worse. That's a little poem kind of story with a poem, right? Called Jim by Hilaire Belloc. Yeah, there's a pig and, and um, rhinoceros. Yeah, and a deer and a bunny. Yeah, yeah. This is called The Going to Bed Book by Sandra Boynton. It says, the sun has set not long ago. Now everybody goes below to take a bath in one big tub with soap all over, scrub, scrub, scrub. They hang their towels up on the wall and find pajamas, big and small. This is an old book, but not as old as the other stories I had just read on this podcast. With some on top and some beneath, they brush and brush and brush their teeth. And when the moon is on the rise, the animals all exercise. One copy says they all go up to exercise. And down once more, but not so fast. They're on their way to bed at last. The day is done, they say good night, and somebody turns off the light. 
The moon is high, the sea is deep. They rock and rock and rock to sleep. Maybe that was supposed to be all the animals on Noah's Ark. But everybody has certain things they do before they go to bed. Yeah. Exercise. Maybe exercise mm -hmm. and brush your teeth. Brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. uh, go, uh, go to bed. Go to bed. And you need to stay in your bed. And stay in your bed, yeah. And you can pray and read a Bible story. Those are good things to do. Yep. Yep. Prayer for a Child by Rachel Field. Bless this milk and bless this bread. Bless this soft and waiting bed where I presently shall be wrapped in sweet security. Through the darkness, through the night, let no danger come to fright. My sleep till morning once again beckons at the window pane. Bless the toys whose shapes I know, the shoes that take me to and fro and up and down and everywhere. Bless my little painted chair. Bless the lamplight. Bless the fire. Bless the hands that never tire in their loving care of me. Bless my friends and family. Bless my father and my mother and keep us close to one another. Bless other children far and near and keep them safe and free from fear. So let me sleep and let me wake in peace and health for Jesus' sake. Amen. Here's a nice story for you that Mimi found in the series, The Bookshelf for Boys and Girls from when I was a little girl. Nursery Favorites Old and New. This is volume one. I've been reading to you off and on out of this volume. And this is the story called The Fox and the Little Red Hen. I don't remember this one. I just briefed over it and I do not remember it. Once upon a time, there was a little red hen. She lived in a little white house and she had a little green garden. Near her home lived a family of foxes. One day, Mama Fox said to Papa Fox, I want, to, I want a fat hen to eat. There was nothing in the pantry for the baby foxes, so Papa Fox started out to find something. He ran down the road until he came to the woods. Surely I will find something there, he said, but he found nothing to eat in the woods. As he came near the little green garden, he said, Oh, I smell fresh cake. Oh, I smell a little red hen. Sure enough, there was the little red hen eating her cake. Papa Fox stole up softly behind her and grabbed her and put her into the bag on his back. And then he ran quickly off down the hill toward his home. The little red hen was so frightened and she could only whisper, oh dear. Then, just then, she had to sneeze. And when she put her claw into her pocket for her handkerchief, she felt her little scissors. Quick as a flash, she took them out and cut a little hole in the bag. Peeping out, she saw a great hill just ahead, all covered with stones. As Papa Fox stopped to rest on his way up the hill, with his back torn, turned toward her, she cut a big hole in the bag jumped out and quickly put a big stone in the bag in her place. As Papa Fox kept on up the hill, he thought the bag was pretty heavy, but he said, never mind, she is nice and fat. 
Mama Fox met him at the front door with all the baby foxes. The water is boiling, said she. What have you in your bag? asked the baby foxes. A fat little red hen, said Papa Fox. As he held the bag over the pot, he said to Mama Fox, When I drop her in, you clasp on the lid. So he opened the bag. Splash! went the boiling water. It spilled all over Papa Fox and Mama Fox and the baby foxes. Never again did they try to catch the little red hen. That was a good one. We'll go on with a short one called the talkative tortoise. Remember, a tortoise is a turtle. A talking tortoise lived many years ago high up on the slope of the Himalaya Mountains. Two wild ducks occasionally came there to feed, and they became very friendly with the tortoise. One day, they told him about their home, a golden cave in a far country. A far country. It's a beautiful place, they said. Why don't you come with us next time we fly back? I should love to, replied the tortoise, but how could I get there? I can't fly. We'll take you between us, said the ducks, but you must keep your mouth shut. The tortoise said he would go, said he would. So the ducks gave him a stick to hold on to by his teeth. Then they themselves took hold of the stick by their beaks one at each end, and away they flew high up in the air with the tortoise between them. Some villagers, seeing the strange sight, called out, Look! Two wild ducks are flying overhead, carrying a tortoise on a stick. The tortoise wanted to say, What's so funny about that? But he remembered just in time, the ducks had told him to keep his mouth shut. Pretty soon, they were flying over a small town. A little boy called to his sister, Look at those ducks carrying a tortoise on a stick. And both children laughed rudely. This made the tortoise so angry that he forgot all about what the ducks had told him. He opened his mouth to talk back to the children, and splash! Down he fell into a big lake miles below. So he never did get to see the golden cave, which was the home of his friends, the ducks. You should have listened to that advice, huh? Hello there, the story I'm reading to you is called Paul Bunyan, Giant Lumberjack, written and illustrated by Del J. McCormick. This part is called Paul Bunyan and His Boyhood. Many tales are told of Paul Bunyan, the giant woodsman, mightiest hero of the North Woods, a man of great size and strength who was taller than the trees of the forest. He had such strength in his huge arms that they say he could take the tallest pine tree break it in two with his bare hands. Now you know this is a pretend story right there, don't you? They tell of his mighty deeds and strange adventures from Maine to California. He could outrun the swiftest deer and cross the widest river in one great stride. Even today, lumberjacks who work in the woods find small lakes and point them out saying, those are the footprints of Paul Bunyan that have been filled with water. A giant logger was Paul and he chopped down whole forests in a single day and he and his woodsmen logged off North Dakota in a single month. His axe was as wide as a barn door and had a great oak tree for a handle. It took six full-grown men to lift it. They say that he was born in Maine, and even as a baby, he was so large that his mother and father had to have 14 cows to supply milk for his porridge. Every morning when they looked at him, he had grown two feet taller. They built a huge cradle for Paul and floated it in the ocean off the coast of Maine. The ocean waves rocked him to sleep. One day he started bouncing up and down his cradle and started a 70-foot tidal wave that washed away towns and villages. After that, Paul's folks gave up the idea of a floating cradle, 
took Paul with them into the Maine woods. Paul spent his boyhood in the woods and helped his father cut down trees. They sawed the trees into logs and tied them together into large rafts, which were floated down the river to the sawmills. Even as a boy, he had the strength of 12 men and could ride a raft through the wildest rapids of the river. One day, the man at the sawmill refused to buy the logs. They were too large for his mill to cut up into lumber. So Paul chained them together again and pulled the raft back up the river to his father's camp. Imagine his dad surprised to see young Paul wading up the river, towing the great raft of logs behind him. Everybody liked young Paul, and for miles around, they told of his great feats and strength. Now he took an iron crowbar and bent it into a safety pen to hold together a rip in his trousers. And of how another time he came to the end of the field he was plowing with two oxen and having no room to turn the plow and oxen around, picked up the plow and oxen and all and turned them around to start back the other way. Yet Paul never boasted. When people asked him how strong he was, he just laughed. And when Paul laughed, the folks in the villages ran into their houses and hid them hid thinking it was a thunderstorm. In spite of his huge size, Paul was as quick as lightning. They say he was the only man in the woods who could blow out a candle at night and hop into bed before it was dark. Being so quick on his feet was once his undoing. He was out in the woods hunting one day and shot a bear. Paul was anxious to see if he had hit, if he had hit and ran lickety split toward it only to get there before the shot he had fired. <laughs> You understand children means he was faster than a bullet the result was that he received a full load of his own buckshot in the seat of his breeches breeches are pants when paul was full grown he decided he wanted to become the greatest lumberjack in america and perform great feats of logging he dreamed of leading his men through the wondrous adventures in the great forests of the west hold on let me see if that's the end of it That's a, that's a part we can pause at. But let me see if we'll read the next one here. There's another one. We better read the next part. This part's called Babe the Blue Ox. One day, when Paul was working in his father's logging camp, in the Maine woods, it started to snow. Day after day, the soft, fluffy snowflakes fell until the entire camp was covered with a blanket of snow. Log cabins disappeared from sight, and all but the tallest trees were buried under the great snowdrifts. And the strangest thing of all was that the snow, instead of being white, was a bright sapphire blue. For miles and miles, as far as one could see, the forest was covered with beautiful blue snow. Loggers even today remember that year and call it the winter of the blue snow. When the snow had stopped falling, Paul put on his snowshoes and went out to find wood for his fireplace. As he was returning, he noticed two little ears sticking up through, the, through a snowdrift. It must be some poor animal lost and freezing to death, thought Paul. He reached down with one of his great hands and scooped the little thing out of the snow. It was a baby ox calf with thin, wobbly legs. Paul put the little calf inside one of his large pockets and took him home. Soon he was curled up in front of the fireplace and as happy and warm as he could be. Poor little baby, said Paul. As the calf, little calf drank some warm milk and gratefully caressed Paul's hand with his tongue, Paul decided to call the little calf babe and to keep him for a pet. The strangest thing about Babe was that even after he became thawed out, his coat remained a soft, glossy blue. Paul nursed his new pet back to health, but his color never changed. The winter of the blue snow had colored him blue, and blue he remained forever after. Babe followed Paul wherever he went and grew larger each day. Every time Paul looked around, the little calf seemed to have grown a foot taller. 
In the spring, Paul built a barn for a little, a little barn for Babe and put the calf inside for the night. The next morning, the barn was gone and so was the little blue calf. Paul searched high and low. Finally, he found Babe calmly eating grass in a neighboring valley, with the barn perched right up on his back. He had outgrown it in a single night. Paul became very fond of Babe and took him on all of his adventures in the woods. He grew by leaps and bounds and soon was almost as large as Paul himself. Woodsmen tell us that when Babe was full grown, he measured 42 axe handles between the eyes. His appetite was tremendous. Every evening he ate a ton and a half of hay. Even then, he wouldn't be satisfied to go to bed unless he had three wagon loads of turnips for dessert. Paul taught him to help with the logging in the woods and would give him an 80 pound lump of sugar if he had been a good ox during the day. Babe was always full of mischief, however. <clears throat> Excuse me. He liked to roar and stamp his feet at night, so the men would run out of the bunkhouses where they slept, thinking it was an earthquake. When Paul scolded him for it, Babe only chuckled to himself and pretended he was asleep. Once when Babe was standing beside the cookhouse, he winked at Paul and put his head in the cookhouse window. Babe gave a great sneeze and blew a whole barrel of flour over hot biscuit slam the cook and his helper, Green Puff Fatty. Babe was very useful in many ways. For instance, Paul had a lot of trouble with the crooked, twisty road that wound in and out through the forest. He finally tied one end of the road to a large stump and hitched Babe to the other end with a large logging chain. Babe, Babe dug his great hoofs in the ground and strained and tugged until he had pulled the entire road out straight. Remember, this is a pretend story, isn't it? You can tell, especially when it talks about silly stuff like that. It was a mighty feat of strength. In doing it, he stretched the heavy iron links of the logging chain until it was a single iron bar. During his first summer, Babe became fat and lazy and one day refused to pull the logs down the road to the river. He wanted to wait until winter when the snow was on the ground and logs would, be, would slide easier. Paul didn't say a word. That night, he had the men secretly whitewash the road. The next morning, Babe thought it was snow and pulled the logs without further trouble. When winter, when winter finally came again and covered the main woods with beautiful white snow, Babe was the happiest ox in the world. He loved to roam through the woods on the new snowshoes that Paul had given him for his first birthday. The greatest trouble Paul had that winter was finding enough food for Babe, who was getting thin. One day, he thought of a great idea and called Ol the Big Swede. Ol was the camp blacksmith and next to Paul, the largest man in camp. Ole, he said, I want you to make the largest pair of green eyeglasses in the world. When Ole was finished, Paul put the eyeglasses on Babe, strapping them over his nose. Then he turned Babe out into the snow again. To Babe, with his new green glasses, all the snow looked like nice green grass. He ate and ate and grew fat and healthy again in no time. Can you grow fat on snow? No, you can't, because snow's like water. It's just made out of water, isn't it? In all the woods, there was no... No one so kindly toward Babe as Paul Bunyan, and no ox was ever as faithful to his master as Babe, the famous blue ox. There's two more, at least, stories about Paul Bunyan. Oh, more than that. Mimi's got to get to bed. I'll have to finish these later. continuing on with talking about Paul Bunyan who we found out is a pretend character from um, 
the United States uh, folk tales that we have in America, American folk tale. This one is called The Winter of the Blue Snow. One night in the Northwoods, the men were seated around a campfire. They were telling of their adventures in other camps. Someone asked Paul to tell them of his earlier adventures. Tell us about the winter of the blue snow, cried Tiny Tim. Well, said Paul, I was logging with my father back in the Maine woods. That was the winter I found Babe, the blue ox. Only he was a little calf then, not much larger than Tiny Tim. Old timers sometimes speak of it speak of it as the year of the two winters. When summer came, it got cold again, and in the fall it turned colder. For two solid years, the snow covered the ground so deep that only the tops of the trees showed through the snow. The snow was blue in color and over 200 feet deep in places. The Great Lakes froze solid to the very bottom. It would never have thawed out if loggers hadn't cut the ice up into small blocks and set them out in the sun to melt. When the spring finally came, they had to get a complete new set of fish for the lakes. <laughs> Are these funny stories, kids? The camp was buried under the snow, and the men rode up to the surface in elevators. Each man had 16 blankets so that he would be warm at night. Shot Gunderson, who was a head sawyer, can tell you how cold it was. He slept under 42 blankets, and one morning he got lost and couldn't find his way out. It was three days before we could find him, and by that time he had almost starved to death. It was so cold that when Hot Biscuit Slim set the coffee out to cool, it froze so fast the ice was hot. The men had to eat breakfast with their mittens on, and sometimes the hot biscuits were frozen solid before they could take a bite. The bunk houses where we slept were so cold that the words froze as soon as the men spoke. The frozen words were thrown into a pile behind the stove, and the men would have to wait until the words thawed out before they knew what was being said. When the men sang, the music froze, and the following spring, the woods were full of music as odd bits of song gradually thawed out. Can that happen, children? No. Very few trees were cut that winter, as we had to make holes in the snow and lower the men down to the trees. <laughs> then we could pull, we would pull the trees out of the holes with long ropes. The men all let their beards grow as long as a protection against grow long as a protection against the cold. Some of the beards were so long that they got in the way, and the men were always stumbling over them. So we made a new rule in the camp. Anyone with a beard over six feet long had to keep the end of it tucked in his boots. In the spring, the beards were so thick, the men had to shave them off with axes. Can you imagine that with your daddy? I don't think so, huh? When Christmas came that year, the men were homesick for some good old-fashioned white snow. It doesn't seem like Christmas, they cried, with all this bright blue snow on the ground. So I decided to put on snowshoes and travel west till I could find some white snow. Well, sir, I climbed over mountains and across plains, right out to the Pacific Ocean, which was frozen solid. The ice seemed fairly thick, so I kept on going, and you know... I had to travel clear to China before I could find any white snow, but the men were certainly happy when I brought them back some white snow for Christmas. <laughs> we had a lot of trouble with frostbite biters that winter. They were little animals about three inches long that lived in the snow. They bit the men on the feet as they walked along. Even now you hear people being, talk of being frostbitten, but that winter it was much more dangerous. The blue snow finally melted in the spring and filled many lakes in the woods. To this day, many of the beautiful lakes in the mountains are still colored blue from the winter of the blue snow. The Indians called the country the land of the sky blue water. That was a silly pretend one, wasn't it? These are all pretend, but they're pretty funny. The next little part is called Johnny Inkslinger and his magic pen. One day, a visitor asked Paul Bunyan how many men were in the camp. Paul didn't know. There was Hot Biscuit Slim, 
and his 200 cooks. Ole, the big Swede, Blackie, Tiny Tim, and hundreds more. Paul tried to count them one day at dinner, but they kept coming and going for hours. He asked Cream Puff Fatty how many desserts he had made. 8,000, said Cream Puff Fatty. Good, said Paul, then we must have 8,000 men. No, said Cream Puff Fatty, because some of the men don't eat desserts. An old big Swede eats seven, except when it is strawberry shortcake, then he eats ten. So Paul gave up even trying to count the men and sent for Johnny Inkslinger to do the arithmetic for the camp. Johnny Inkslinger was the best bookkeeper in the North Woods, a tall, sad-looking man with a bald head. He always wore a large pair of eyeglasses perched at the end of his long, thin nose. He added and subtracted and multiplied endless rows of figures day and night. He became the fastest bookkeeper in the world and never made a mistake. One night, he counted all the stars in the sky and never missed one. Johnny Inkslinger kept track of everything, even down to the last ear of corn in the kitchens. His magic pen never ran out of ink. A long rubber hose connected it to a 10-gallon barrel of ink, and that is how the fountain pen was invented. Johnny Inkslinger wrote so fast that the barrel of ink had to be filled every two days. You are using too much ink, said Paul one day. We cannot buy it fast enough. So Johnny Inkslinger thought of a plan. He quit dotting his I's and crossing his T's, and from then on, he saved nine gallons of ink a week. Johnny Inkslinger, Inkslinger invented new ways of adding and subtracting that are used to this day. He wrote every number down twice so as not to make a single mistake. He also invented the mistake eraser. This was a large rubber sponge to be rubbed over a page of five page of figures. It erased only the mistakes and left all the rest of the figures as they were. Johnny finally had no use for it as he made no, mis no mistakes. He gave it to Hot Biscuit Slim. Hot Biscuit Slim used it for a while, but he never liked it. The magic sponge erased almost every figure he made. He gave it to Ole the Big Swede. Ole tried it just once and erased the whole sheet of paper till there was only a blank space where all the figures had been. Seems Ole was very poor at arithmetic. No matter how many times he added two and two, it always came out six. What's two plus two, kids? Four, isn't it? Johnny Inkslinger once tried to figure out how much it cost to feed Babe the blue ox, but he finally had to give it up. Every time he added up the figures, he found that Babe had eaten another barn full of hay. They would have to start all over again. This made him so angry that he told Paul he would quit doing arithmetic forever. Nevertheless, Johnny Inkslinger remained with Paul during all his years of adventure in the woods. Let's see, there's several more. Mirror Lake and the Black Duck Dinner. When they broke up camp on the St. Lawrence River, Paul told Hot Biscuit Slim to prepare a wonderful dinner. It was to be on Sunday, the last day in camp. The last day in camp. Slim and his cooks were excited, as you can imagine. For miles around, the farmers brought in strawberries, peas, new potatoes, and gallons of rich cream for Cream Puff Fatty to make into his famous cream puffs. The men cut 55 wagon loads of wood so the stoves could be kept burning until all the food was cooked. What kind of meat are we going to have for dinner today? asked Paul. Hot Biscuit Slim hid his head in shame. Slim was the best cook in the woods, but somehow he always forgot something. <coughs> Excuse me. Once he forgot to order milk. Another time he forgot to bake bread. This time he'd entirely forgotten to order any meat for the dinner. I forgot to tell the butchers to bring any meat, admitted Slim. No meat at all, asked Paul. No meat, cried Slim. I forgot all about the meat. Johnny Inkslinger heard them talking and called to Hot Biscuit Slim. How would you like to give your men a nice black duck dinner? Where will I be able to get the ducks, asked Slim. Come with me, said Johnny. 
They went to Paul's bunkhouse and Johnny Inkslinger pointed to the huge hand mirror that Paul used when he combed his large beard. It was 120 feet from tip to tip. Next, he told Brimstone Bill to harness 16 teams of horses. With the aid of the horses, they dragged the huge mirror through the woods to a nearby meadow. They placed the mirror on the ground with the glass side up and piled dirt around the edges. In a short time, the mirror looked like a beautiful little lake. The trees along the edge could be seen in the mirror as if it had been real water. Everybody go back to camp, said Johnny Inkslinger, and in an hour I will bring you all black ducks, all the black ducks you can possibly eat. When everybody had gone, he hid in some nearby bushes, and putting his hands to his mouth, he gave the call of the wild black ducks. Quack, 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 said Johnny Inkslinger. Johnny made a noise like a real duck, for he had lived all his life in the woods and knew the calls of all the wild, an wild animals. The ducks swooped down and, mistaking the hard glass mirror for water, fell against it with a crash and were stunned. Johnny soon had enough for dinner, and the wagons carried them back to camp. Here are enough ducks for a wonderful black duck dinner, he said to Hot Biscuit Slim as the wagons drove up to the kitchen. Hot Biscuit Slim was beside himself for joy. The cookhouse boys quickly plucked the feathers, and soon the ducks were merrily roasting in the huge ovens. We will have the best duck dinner that anyone has ever eaten cried Hot Biscuit Slim, and the finest roast duck, all of it will go, and the finest roast duck, all will go to Johnny Inkslinger. Because that was his plan to trick the ducks to come flying down and hit the mirror, huh? This is our last story in this episode, and it's our last story today of Paul Bunyan the fictional or pretend character we've been reading about from uh, North American or United States uh, folk, folk tales, they're called. <clears throat> That's a hard word for Mimi to say. When Paul Bunyan had cut down all the trees in North Dakota, he decided to go west. It was summertime and the forest was sweet with the smell of green trees. The spreading branches cast their cool shadows on the ground. We must cross vast plains, said Paul to his men, for it is so hot that not even a blade of grass can grow. You must not become too thirsty, as there will be very little water to drink. Paul knew it would be a long, hard journey, so he decided to send all the heavy camp equipment by boat down the Mississippi River and around the Horn to the Pacific Ocean. Paul told Billy Whiskers, a little bald-headed logger with a bushy beard, to take a crew of men and build a boat. Billy had once been a sailor. In a short time, the boat was finished and loaded with all the heavy camp tools. Everyone cheered as Billy Whiskers and his men started down the Mississippi River on their long trip. Billy wore an admiral's hat and looked very in looked every inch the sailor, although he hadn't been on board a ship for 35 years. With Paul and Babe the bl Blue Ox leading the way, the rest of the camp then started across the plains on their long journey west. In a few days, they had left the woods and were knee-deep in sand that stretched out before them for miles and miles. The sun became hotter and hotter. I made some vanilla ice cream, said Hot Biscuit Slim one day as he gave them in their lunch, but the ice cream became so hot under this boiling sun that I couldn't touch it. Tiny Tim, the water boy, was so hot and tired that Paul had to put him up on Babe's back where he rode the rest of the trip. Every time Babe took a step forward, he moved ahead two miles, and Tiny Tim had to hold on with all his might. Even old the big Swede, who was so strong he could carry a full-grown horse under each arm, began to tire. 
There was not a tree in sight. Paul Bunyan's men had never before been, been away from the forest. They missed the cool shade of the trees. Whenever Paul stopped to rest, 30 or 40 men would stand in his shadow to escape the boiling sun. I won't be able to last another day, cried Brimstone Bill, if it doesn't begin to cool off soon. Excuse me. Even Paul Bunyan became tired finally and took his heavy double-bitted axe from his shoulder and dragged it behind him as he walked. The huge axe cut a ragged ditch through the sand that can be seen to this day. It is now called the Grand Canyon, and the Colorado River runs through it. <laughs> Aren't they silly? It became so hot that the men were exhausted and refused to go another step. Hot Biscuit Slim had complained that there was very little food left in camp. That night, Paul took Babe the Blue Ox and went alone in the mountains to the north. In the mountains, Paul found a farmer with a barn full of corn. I will buy your corn, said Paul to the farmer. So he loaded all the corn on Babe's back and started for camp. By the time he arrived there, the sun was shining again and the day grew hotter as the sun rose overhead. Soon it became so hot that the corn started popping. It shot up into the air, into the air in vast clouds of white puffy popcorn. It kept popping and popping, and soon the air was filled with wonderful white popcorn. It came down all over camp and almost covered the kitchen. The ground became white with popcorn as far as the eye could see. It fell like a snowstorm until everything was covered two feet deep with fluffy popcorn. A snowstorm, a snowstorm, cried the men as they saw it falling. Never had they seen anything like it before. Some ran into the bunkhouses and put on their mittens, and others put on heavy overcoats and woolen caps. They clapped each other on the back and laughed and laughed and shouted for joy. Let's make snowshoes, cried old Big Swede. So they all made snowshoes and waded around in the white popcorn and threw popcorn snowballs at each other. Never one forgot how hot it had been the day before. Even the horses thought it was real snow, and some of them almost froze to death before the men could put woolen blankets on them and lead them to shelter. <laughs> but it wasn't real snow, remember? Babe the Blue Ox knew it was only popcorn and winked at Paul. Paul Bunyan chuckled to himself at the popcorn blizzard and decided to start west again while the men were feeling so happy. He found them all huddled around the kitchen fire. Now it's time to move on west, said Paul, before it begins to get hot again. So they packed up and started. The men waded through the popcorn and blew their hands on their hands to keep them warm. Some claimed their feet were frostbitten and others rubbed their ears to keep them from freezing. <laughs> After traveling for a few weeks more, they saw ahead of them the great forest they had set out to reach. They cheered. Paul Bunyan, who had led them safely over the hot desert plains. Babe the Blue Ox laughed and winked at Paul whenever anyone mentioned the Great Blizzard. After reaching the Great Forest in the Rocky Mountains, Paul sent Brimstone Bill and Babe onto the Pacific Coast to meet Billy Whiskers and help unload the boat. They, they finally found the ship outside the entrance to the Golden Gate. What's the matter? shouted Brimstone Bill. Why don't you come in to shore? I can't, cried Billy Whiskers through a large megaphone. My ship is stuck fast to the bottom of the ocean. That seemed very queer to Brimstone Bill, for the water was almost a mile deep out in the ocean beyond the Golden Gate. Billy Whiskers rode ashore and explained. It seems they had made a mistake when they built the ship. The men used new green lumber, and it quickly became water-soaked, and the boat started sinking. As soon as the water came up to the edge of the deck, Billy Whiskers would put it put into shore and build another deck on top of the first deck. When that became water-soaked, he would build another deck on top of that. Finally, when he arrived at the Golden Gate, he found he had 137 decks on his ship, and all but one of them were under the water. Of course, with a boat like that, they couldn't get through the Golden Gate, and all the cargo had to be put on rafts and floated ashore. There, they loaded everything on the big blue ox 
and were soon back in Paul Bunyan's camp in the Rocky Mountains. Well, those were some interesting and funny and silly stories about Paul Bunyan, weren't they? Thank you for joining me, me. I hope you have a good day and keeping Jesus and learn some things, huh?